Good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. This morning, we're concluding our study of 1 John. Next week, we'll start a study of 2 and 3 John over the next couple of three weeks. So y'all be sure to be here. John's writing continues for another two letters. The next two letters are a little shorter than this one. And so we're in the conclusion of it. Again, thank you so much for your faithfulness and for your punctuality and, and all that. So John has, is finishing his letter. finally over. The Holy Spirit has said what is needed to be said to the church. The Holy Spirit has determined, John, you don't have to write any more of this theological instruction to the church and encouragement. That's finished. And so we would expect John to do what? To be like Paul and some of the others. Grace to you. Greet so-and-so. So good to be your pastor. You know, we would expect that kind of an ending, correct? I mean, would most of you expect that kind of an ending? All right. Are we awake this morning? Good. Debbie, I know you're awake. But what does John do? The last thing he does... He gives a command, a warning. He warns us about something by a command. Here's this faithful old man, this pastor who cares for his flock. And he says, I just need to make sure I gather up everything that I have said from the very first verse of chapter 1 to the last verse last week, verse 20 of chapter 5. I want to gather up everything I've said. And that is this. My little children, what? Does somebody know the last verse can help me out? My little children, do what? Guard or keep yourselves, what? From idols. Now, why has he said this? Because you remember the issue that has precipitated this letter is false teachings. They are teaching, whoever these false teachers are, they are teaching what Paul calls another gospel, which is not the gospel. They are saying that Jesus was a phantom, you know, the Spirit of God. He wasn't the Messiah, etc. They were presenting or teaching another God, a false God. And so you remember last week, John is talking about the true God, the real God. They are teaching a God who is not real. And so he says, keep yourselves, guard yourselves from idolatry. I think specifically the idolatry is in his mind is this particular idolatry. But like all the writers of the New Testament, they may have a specific issue in mind, but their, their, their commands are not so restricted that they don't include other issues. They include other issues, but they want to make sure that at least this issue is understood. So he says, keep yourselves. Guard yourselves from what? Idolatry. Now, why does he do that? Well, in relation to this letter, I think we know, but let's talk about it in general. First of all, 
what I want to do this morning is very simple. I want to share something of what is idolatry and then how do we identify it. And let me say this. All sin, you may write this down. All sin is idolatry. Can you get that? Idolatry is not what we accuse the Catholics of, of going into the church and bowing down before statues. That is not the essence of idolatry. It may have idolatrous over, you know, underpinnings to it. But the essence of idolatry is my heart. My heart response, my heart agreement with, my heart's embracement of, my heart's dependence upon, my heart's looking to God as the source of all of my meaning, of my satisfaction in life, of all of my pleasure. Anything at all, and I'm getting ahead of myself so you'll hear this repeated, that in any way touches God in my life is idolatry. That means this. Remember what Paul talked about this body of sin. Do you remember that? Some of you may remember that comment, this body of sin. We live in bodies that are permeated by the fall. We live in bodies that are permeated with sin. And the only time we're going to get out of that is when we die or when Jesus returns to take us home and we get a new body. That means this, that every one of us is imbued with idolatry and that we cannot escape the reality and the potential and the temptation to idolatry. Do you get it? No one can escape that. We don't have to give in to it necessarily, but we can't escape it. So what are we talking about when we talk about idolatry? What, do, what does the Bible mean about idolatry? So let me present it in a way that I wasn't really anticipating doing, but as I was waiting on the Lord and writing and waiting and thinking and praying. You know, it's a conversation any of you have ever taught or whatever. You know, it's a conversation between us and the Holy Spirit as what's happening. So I'm going to define an idol as this. Anything or anyone that has the potential. You notice I did not say the actuality of function. Anything or anyone that has the potential to challenge the supremacy of Christ in our lives. So let me read from, to you from Colossians 1.18. Christ is also the head of the body. What is the body? The church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have the preeminence or the first place in everything. That's God's call for us 
in uniting us relationally to himself in Christ by the Holy Spirit. That my life and that your life will be a living demonstration, a living declaration that Christ is preeminent in how much? How much? How much? Everything. Is anything left out of everything when God says everything? And how much is included in everything when the Lord says everything? Okay. So is there any category at all, at all, no matter how supposedly minuscule it is, is there any category, anything at all, that is not included in this anything? And in everything. Is there? No. This is an all-consuming comment. That God's eternal son. Is going to be. Declared. On the day of his return. To be preeminent in everything in this creation. But. Until he returns, we are the vessels that are declare his preeminence, the first place in everything in our lives. Amen? So that means that anything in my life, anything, how much is included in anything? Hmm? Anything, everything in my life that in any way has the potential and actually begins to be practiced is considered by God to be what, Anthony? An idol. Do we get this? Are you with me this morning? Want to disabuse us of the main thing. One idol is when they do that, or an idol is that and that and the other thing. An idol is much deeper. Idolatry is the activity of my heart's affection and desire and pleasure, and contentment, etc. That's where idolatry has its work. So we must understand that idolatry in this light, in order to see why idolatry is so important to God. What is the issue that brought the northern ten tribes of Israel to destruction by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. What was it? Idolatry. What is the single issue that brought the southern tribes, Judah, into bondage into Babylon? What was it? Idolatry. And what is the single issue that faces us every breath of our life? What is it? Idolatry. So let's not categorize idolatry and something out there and this and that. And once in a while, oh, you have an idol, you have an idol. We all walk in the flesh. We walk according to the spirit, but we're walking in fleshly bodies. And that means that everything about me and of this world has the potential of idolatry. Do we see that? Okay. So 
What does in everything mean? Remember the great Shema? A lawyer approached Jesus one day and says, good teacher. Well, when they begin that way, you know, (laughs) why do you call me good? Because only God, what, is good. By the way, why did Jesus say that? Why did Jesus correct or, if you would, rebuke or adjust this lawyer? Because isn't Jesus good? Isn't Jesus good? He is good in himself, but he's good only to those in experience who know him as the Lord. For those who don't know Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, our Savior, Jesus is not good. Can you grab it? Can you go with that? Jesus is not good if you are not a believer. He can become good when you are saved. But if you do not believe that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, which this lawyer didn't, why are you calling me good? What you after? What's going on here? What's the greatest of all the commandments? So Jesus says, hey, look, what does the scripture say? And he quotes Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema. Remember? Hear. Listen. Shema, O Israel. Listen, O Israel. For the Lord our God, Yahweh, alone is God. But the second is like unto it. And so, where does he quote from? He says, you shall love your, I'm sorry, love the Lord your God, what? With all your heart and your mind, your soul and your strength. And then he, remember, he attaches the second commandment. And you shall love what? Your neighbor as yourself. Where is that found? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's in Leviticus 19.18. On these two commandments hang what? Hang what? All the prophets. Correct? This is a summation of the purpose of God in our life. So what does in everything mean? In everything, for Christ to have preeminence in everything means that we are to love God. And remember, we've learned loving God is loving Christ. Loving Jesus is loving God. Loving the Holy Spirit is loving the Father and the Son. Loving the Father and the Son is loving the Holy Spirit. Do we get this? So when he says in everything that Christ should have the preeminence, the first place, what he's saying is that all of our heart's affection and desire, et cetera, et cetera, with all of our might and all of our strength is to love and serve the Lord. So to the extent that we are loving God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our strength, to that extent, Jesus is being declared as being preeminent in us. Do we see it? So you understand how idolatry affects us. Idolatry is that which has the potential of touching the all of our heart. The all of our mind. 
the all of our strength. Do you see that? For believers, this is what is touching. This issue of all. And this is the struggle. This is the activity. This is the difficulty. The temptations that we encounter. Is there anything in my heart? You search your heart. Let me search mine by the Spirit. Is there anything in my heart that in any way competes with this all? And so remember, in everything, this word preeminence means that Jesus is to have the first place. The second place. The third place. The fourth place. I've heard people say, Jesus is to have the first place. Preeminence means a whole lot more than that. Because you see, if you're giving the first place, can something come in to take the second place? Well, theologically, no. But in our own minds, the way we think, yes. Do you see that? So Jesus is to have the first place, the second place, the third place. Which one, where do we stop? Which one of these places, where do we stop? The 48th place. The two millionth, 88, 90 place, the blah, 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 blah place in everything. If there's even one place in billions of places, then Jesus is not preeminent, essentially. Do we see that? Now, this is an issue, isn't it? I mean, I don't know whether we've ever considered idolatry this way, but it's like, oh, my word. You see, because what we do, we think sin is just certain things. Sin is allowing anything, anyone, any place, any activity, any decision, etc., etc., to in any way touch the all of our heart's love for God in Christ. Is this a challenge? Amen. This means that We find in Jesus all that makes life meaningful. This means that Jesus himself is the very meaning of our life in whom we find our satisfaction and our pleasure. Now, are you beginning to sense something about yourself? If Jesus is to be the all-consuming object or person of my satisfaction... What is the obvious question? What gives me satisfaction apart from Christ? Nothing. Now, hopefully, as we get through this, we'll bring some clarity to all of this. And there are going to be questions, but that's okay because we only have four hours in School of Word this morning. I've been given special dispensation by Steve Roberts. So... So how crucial is this supremacy in everything? How crucial is it? It is the reason for Genesis 1-1. How foundational, how central is it that Christ had the preeminence in everything? How important is this? 
It's the reason for Genesis 1-1. Remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And everything after Genesis 1-1 is an exposition of what Genesis 1-1 is all about to God. How crucial is it? It's the grand subject of the gospel. Jesus came that we may have him as preeminent in our lives to the glory of God the Father. How many of you know this? I've said it many times before. That when either your child or grandchild is shown to be, let's say, preeminent in you, if you understand what I mean with this context. you get it? Shown to be great. Shown to be somebody. That this is a glorious thing for the mom and them and the grandparents. Amen? I've shared this with you many times. I'll share it again. I remember... Ashley was in the eighth grade. And you say, there he goes again. You're right. I'm going to do it over and over again. Why? Because I'm talking about my daughter. You see what I mean? And if you crow about your own children, grandchildren, if you don't. So, geez, we're sitting in the audience. Gene and I are just sitting there. And we're, we're minding our own business. Thank you, Linda. Thank you. We are. At least Gene is minding my business. So they start talking about this special award that they only give occasionally to eighth grade graduates. And it's an award that has to do with how the student is relating to other people, how helpful the grades and so on. And you remember when they said the, the grades, whatever. And Ashley was a good average student, but they said the grades, what did I say? Well, that won't be Ashley. And it wasn't that my daughter's dumb. I'm thinking they're looking for straight-A students. That's what I'm thinking. And so this year's recipient is Ashley Davidson. Now, Zaringer, when that teacher said Ashley Davidson, everybody in that auditorium knew whose daddy she was. You remember that? What did I do? Whoa! That's my daughter. Do you hear me? The glory of a father or a mother or a grandparent is in the exaltation of the child, all right? Are you with me today on this? And when Jesus is preeminent in us, guess who, guess who declares to all creation? You're right. Who says that? God the Father says it. That's the reason. And that's the profundity of the reason we are to give Christ the preeminence. Make sure he has it functionally in our lives. It's the purpose for which we were saved. The preeminence. The preeminence of Christ in everything was the target of Satan. In Genesis 3. You see, we must make sure we see the Bible more accurately and more God-centeredly. We don't want to see things in the Bible as missing the mark and about us primarily. The Bible is for God, from God, and all about God. He is the divine subject. 
verb, direct object, and we're the indirect object. Do we get it? So what was Satan after in Genesis 3.1? Remember what Genesis 3.1 says? Now what? Now the what? The serpent. It doesn't say snake. So you can take snake out of your vocabulary. Now the serpent was more what? Crafty. He's after something. He's after touching the supremacy of Christ. Why? Because you see, when the supremacy of Christ is touched, the Father's glory is touched. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the, what? Beasts of the field. Now, we're talking about folks in the garden. So your question is, how did the serpent get in to the field? How did the enemy get into this serpent? Uh, this, uh, uh, what is it? Serpent, right? How did the enemy get in? Well, you're going to have to figure that out from Genesis chapter 2. The serpent came in. He wasn't put in there by God. That's why it says, of the field, Paul. Not of the garden. He's not of my place. He's come into my place. I've allowed it, but he's come in. Through someone else's compromise. You see what I mean? And the enemy's more crafty. And so what? The serpent's more crafty and what? And he says to the woman, what does he say? Do you remember what the words? Hath God what? Said. I mean, really, Nathan, do you think that that's what God means? Don't you think you can kind of. Don't be too radical about this. Why so rigid? Why are you being so uncompromising? I mean, uncompromising. Why don't you, I'm sorry, why don't you compromise a little bit? Why don't you chill out about your Christianity? Loosen up. That's what he's telling Eve. And what is Satan offering? What is Satan after in this? <clears throat> he's after the fall of humanity. But why? Because God has created us to be his image bearers in whom the supremacy of his son is manifested. Can you say amen? So what is he after? He's after the supremacy of Christ. Colossians 1.18. Satan wanted Adam and Eve. Listen to this word. If you don't, if it's in your notes, circle it, circulate it. <laughs> Adam, <clears throat> Satan wanted Adam and Eve to add something. Just to add a little something for themselves to the command of God. Do you hear it? Just to add a little something. In this way, they would be denying the supremacy of Christ in everything. Satan only wanted them to add a little something to their devotion and obedience to God. Only just a little something. Charles, just a little something. 
He wanted them to adjust. You remember in Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall love the Lord your God with what? All. He wanted them to adjust that word all and to make it almost, most of the time. Satan is not after Adam and Eve to say, look, there is no God and deny God and whatever. Don't believe in God. He's not doing that. But what he is doing is saying, deny God his glory in the supremacy of his son. That's what he is doing. Do, do you understand what idolatry is? Are we beginning to see what idolatry is here? Are you with me this morning? He wanted them to adjust the all. In this way, see, Christ no longer would be supreme. He wouldn't carry, be the first place. And this is also Satan's uh, uh, goal in the temptations in Matthew 3 or Luke 3. Remember that? In each of the temptations. Jesus is taken into the wilderness. And in each temptation, 40 days, no bread. Hey, look, here's a nice oyster loaf. Why don't you eat it? Well, is there anything wrong <laughs> with eating an oyster loaf? Who said no? Darlene, I like that, Darlene. I can hear the frog, too, in your throat. <laughs> is there anything wrong with eating good food? No. What was the idolatry in it, though? Don't eat good food? Well, of course not. You see, Jesus was there on behalf of humanity whom he would save. To deprive himself of his natural desires in favor of the will of God. To deny himself for finding something of benefit for himself in some place other than the will of God. And he knew it was the Father's will that he not eat that oyster loaf. He knew that. And Satan is getting him to look at something that is neutral. You know what I mean? Here's a nice plate of food. Is, this, is, this, is that sinful? It becomes sinful once it begins to be a substitute where we find something of pleasure and not in God. Does that mean that God doesn't want you to enjoy good food? No. God makes food the way it is, hopefully prepared by somebody in your family. It really tastes good. And because of that, I can't wait to sit down and eat dinner because my wife makes the best whatever it is. Correct? And if you feel this way? Well, my husband. Is that idolatrous? No. But once that activity begins to take a hold on us so that when we are not experiencing it, or when it's not able to be given to us. Or when we are denied it. Then we begin to feel 
different. Are you with me? Let me jump ahead a little bit. How do you know when something is beginning to become an active idol? How do you know when the activity of idolatry is beginning to take hold of your heart and begin to touch that all? When someone, let's say like me, says, don't. And whatever that don't is, it's touching that which is something you love to do. Are you with me today? Do I need to start spelling it out or can you grab it without me giving you details? Can you get it without details? Don't go to that place. Man, that man just bothers me when he says that. Why? Why does it bother you? What is it, Greg, that is toying with you? Don't be with those people. He's being, why is it touching you? What is it touching in you? Don't say those words. Don't participate, oh, here it goes, in that sport. Does that mean that that sport, those people, what else did I talk about? That place is in and of itself wrong? Well, sometimes, yes. But if it's neutral, how does your heart feel when you are challenged? Shall I be specific or do you get the idea? Look at your life. Look at what you're doing, where you're going, what you're watching, with whom you are associating. Look at that and allow the Holy Spirit to tell you something about the function of idolatry in you, in me. If that thing is withdrawn or even touched or diminished or refused or whatever it is, you just can't to some extent. How does it make you feel, Jan? Kind of get a little attitude, don't you? Are you with me on this? You get a little, huh. And the question is, who does he think he is? Oh, I've been told this a whole lot of times. And I'm going to continue to be told it. Because this old bat ain't keeping his mouth shut about himself and about others. Why? I don't want your hearts to be captured on a, and on the day of judgment to miss blessings of God forever. I don't want that to happen to you, Wendy. I'd rather you'd be steamed over me. But the Holy Spirit uses that steam to show you that there's a fire inside of you that shouldn't be burning. Do you see it? Are you with me right now? Now, let me ask you this question. I don't know if I'll be finishing this, but I think you're getting the idea. 
And raise your hand truthfully. I raised my hand already. I'm already ahead of the pack, Todd. How many of us have already begun to sense idolatry activity in your life? Anybody with these feelings and whatever? Those of you not raising your hands, it may be that you're shy. You're just shy. Micah, you shy? You raise your hands? Good for you. I was going to come over there and help you. <laughs> but your big brother is so tall, I couldn't see a hand. I mean, Jude, you did raise your hand, didn't you? Anybody not raise their hand? <laughs> no, I'm not saying anything. It has to do with the affections of our heart, the desires of our heart, the pleasures of our heart. That's what all this has to do with. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 12. All things are lawful or good for me. Now, obviously, he's not talking about sin. So all this stuff in the world is all neutral in and of itself except for sin. And there are things in this world and activities and places that are told us that's sin. That's not included in this. All things are good for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but I will not be mastered by anything. Mastered. And so when I have a question, here it is. Here it comes. You knew it was coming. And here's, you're looking at an activity. You're looking at a place. You're looking at a thought. You're looking at whatever. And the question is, I wonder if. I wonder if. You know, that old bat preached this and that and the other thing, and he challenged me. I wonder if. Well, the first thing I would warn you about is walking in the land of if. You better stop and stay away from it and ask the Holy Spirit to clarify it. And here's what I mean by clarification. Not, is it okay for me to? Is it okay? No. Here's the question you ask. Holy Spirit, are you leading me to do, to say, to go? Are you here today? Jody, you got this? Anna Maria, you have that? The other Anna Maria, you have that? Purple, you have that? Are we getting it? This is the issue of idolatry. I have to fight it continually. I'm not free of it. The day I'll be free of it, I'll be dead. It was idolatry that the Lord was dealing with in the Ten Commandments. Remember this? I am the Lord your God who brought you out, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What's the first command? You shall have no other gods before me. Then you shall not make yourself an idol. God is to have the preeminence. What are we to do? If there's a question in my heart, I need not to ignore it or explain it away or try to give it a biblical coding that causes me to feel better and more acceptable in it. 
You, do you hear yourself in these things? Are we with me today in this? Don't we do it all the time? We need to do what the Thessalonians did when they heard the gospel. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. They turned to God from idols to serve the living or real God. They stopped it. They say, you know, Lord, I have really enjoyed this. But now I'm realizing it's become too important to me because I know how my feelings or emotions are when this is challenged in me. And I would dare say that some of you, maybe all of us for the first time, have realized, oh, I didn't realize it was that important to me. Are you with me? I know I asked that, but I want you to at least acknowledge this. I didn't realize that. Huh. I know it's not sin in the Bible. Surely there's nothing in the Bible about me eating a nice hamburger. But, huh. If I can't eat them anymore, what happens? You know, I'll be sorry, you know, but sorry isn't like, huh. We need to test ourselves continually before God, regularly. The Holy Spirit is going to be speaking to us in his word, in sermons, in teachings, in counseling, in friends, in the obvious I know what the word of God says about those things, that place, that activity. But I'm going to do it because it's so much fun. I enjoy it. The kids love it. Really? Really? The question is, does God love it? And is he leading you into it? So we're finished first, John. Thank you so much for being with us in all this teaching. Hope you all had a lovely Thanksgiving. And be with us next week as we go through first and second John, now second and third John in the next few weeks. Thank you so much.